Welcome to this week's Gospel Project for Adults Leader Training Podcast. I'm Daniel Davis. This week we are on Unit 25, Session 2, titled The Provocative Prophet. The word provocative has a few connotations, and I trust you understand that we don't use this word with most of those in mind. When we describe Jesus as the provocative prophet, we mean that he confronted those who needed confronting. He answered questions in a way that frustrated his accusers. And he posed questions to turn others' intentions back on their own heads. Jesus was thought-provoking and convictional. This is what we mean by Jesus being the provocative prophet. After Jesus entered Jerusalem, with the crowds cheering with his triumphal entry, Jesus had various encounters with the Pharisees and Sadducees throughout that week. Their goal was almost always to discredit Jesus. His goal was to teach about God and his kingdom and ultimately to die for the sin of the world. Jesus both answered and asked questions that showed that he had a mastery of the Word of God and that he also stood in authority over the Word of God. That's not to say the scriptures have a shortcoming, but that they serve the purpose of teaching us about God and his ways and pointing us to Jesus who is God in the flesh, the ultimate revelation of God. Jesus' conversations and teachings in Matthew 22 show that he truly is the Messiah sent into the world for our salvation. In his responses to the challenges of the religious leaders, Jesus demonstrated his wisdom, authority, and mastery of the scriptures. In point one, we see Jesus affirm the reality of resurrection. We encourage you to begin this point with a refresher on the doctrine of resurrection. You can find the key doctrine statement for resurrection on leader page 24, and it can be found in the group member's daily discipleship guide on page 30. Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ after he died on the cross in our place. And we also believe in the future resurrection at Jesus' second coming, at which time all the dead will rise, some to glory in the presence of God forever because they lived by faith, and the rest to eternal judgment in hell because they rejected God and his Son in favor of their own sinful ways. This can be found in Daniel 12 and Revelation 20. For Christians, the future resurrection holds out the promise of the fullness of eternal life in Christ Jesus that we experience now only in part. Getting into the passage for this point, we find a subtle attack against Jesus from the Sadducees in the form of an innocuous question. They pitch a hypothetical story to try to catch Jesus in a theological conundrum, and all of this revolves around the doctrine of resurrection. The Sadducees were a Jewish sect that did not believe in the resurrection. They also limited the scope of God's word to the books of the law. We know these as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. The Sadducees chose not to recognize the rest of the Old Testament as authoritative, so they cut themselves off from many passages in the Old Testament that teach and allude to the reality of resurrection. So, when posing their question to Jesus, they began with a law from Moses about how to carry on the family name of a husband who dies with no children. They believed they complicated the situation in their scenario by multiplying the number of brother husbands to the widow to the number of seven. If the resurrection is true, then whose wife would she be in the time of the resurrection? Before we go on, note in your leader guide the chart prompt on leader pages 24 and 25. You will find the same prompt in the next two points as well. 
These are opportunities for you to have a different teaching method that uniquely involves your group in the examination and understanding of the text. With this teaching option, you will have your group help you to fill out a table with the headings, the question, the trap, and the answer. This framework will help your group make sense of what is going on in each of the episodes we cover in Matthew 22 this week. Now, back to Jesus' response to the Sadducees. The opponents thought they had him cornered in a contradiction of logic. The scriptures don't speak of such a scenario. But the Sadducees' main point was to emphasize the silliness of the resurrection from their perspective. Yet Jesus responded with authority and clarity. First, Jesus addressed their truncated view of the scriptures, cutting themselves off from the fullness of the power of God in his word. The totality of the Old Testament scriptures affirm the resurrection and the existence of angels, another belief the Sadducees rejected. Second, Jesus rejected the subtext of their question, and he did so by going to the only authority the Sadducees did affirm, the books of the law. They denied the resurrection because that doctrine isn't explicit in the books of Moses, but that doesn't mean it isn't there. Jesus quoted Exodus 3.6, God said to Moses himself, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus interpreted this to mean that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This response fascinated the crowd, and it does me too, because on the basis of a verb tense, the difference between am and was, Jesus determined that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still have life ahead of them. Though these patriarchs of the Israelites had been dead for generations before Moses and centuries before Jesus, God spoke of them as being alive in the present thus validating the doctrine and the hope of resurrection. And incidentally, Jesus' response also speaks to the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Jesus banked the validity of his belief and response on the truth of God's word down to the words and down to the tense of a verb. Jesus trusted God's word to be true, and we can too. In point two, we see Jesus clarify the centrality of love. After seeing the Sadducees get shut down by Jesus, the Pharisees give it a shot. Their question was about the greatest command in the law. This doesn't seem like a very dangerous question, but its intent was to cause confusion and disillusionment in whomever would hear Jesus' answer. To select one law among the 613 laws as the greatest would mean diminishing the others and would jeopardize his reputation with the people in the crowd, who likely had their own thoughts on the matter. But again, Jesus answered with authority and clarity. First, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.5, a foundational verse for every Jew. He said, The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In short, love God with all that you are. But then he went on to speak of the second greatest command from Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself. If people will obey these two commands, then they will fulfill all the law and the prophets, or to put it another way, all the Old Testament scriptures. We can see the logic of Jesus' answer if we compare these two greatest commandments to the list of the Ten Commandments. The first four have a focus on how we ought to honor God above all and the remaining six have a focus on how we ought to relate to others. 
All the other laws found in the Old Testament fit into the same framework. If we love God and love others, then we will be obeying all of God's commands that He has for us. And this makes great sense on another level because the Scriptures teach us that God is love in 1 John 4, 8. This doesn't negate God's holiness, justice, and wrath against sin. Rather, these are upheld by God's love. God's love led to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in our place for our sin so that we might be saved. And He has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in believers in Christ so that we might bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Love is central to God's commands because love is central to who God is. And so, love must be central to those who believe in the Son of God, the embodiment of God's love for us. In point three, we see Jesus claim the authority of the Messiah. In this passage, Jesus turns the tables on the Pharisees and asks them a question. If you keep up with the chart teaching activity throughout this session, then this entry will have a unique feel because Jesus is the one laying the trap for the Pharisees. Jesus begins with a foundational premise about the Messiah, a truth that nearly every Jew would agree to. The promised Messiah will be a son of David, a descendant in the line of Israel's greatest king. This truth is foundational because it rests on the promise of God to David in 2 Samuel 7, as well as other Old Testament passages. Again, the inspiration and truth of God's Word are foundational for all of life and all of our hopes. Referencing Psalm 110 verse 1, Jesus, acknowledging the divine inspiration of the Scriptures, pitches a conundrum for the Pharisees to consider. If David was inspired by God when writing the psalm, then it must be true, even if it does not make sense to us right away. David called his son Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1 which says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. To put a fine point on this challenge, Jesus clarifies in verse 45, If David called him Lord, how then can he be his son? The issue at hand is that Lord was a word typically reserved for God himself. The first Lord in Psalm 110.1 is the name Yahweh, God's name in Exodus 3, the God of the living. With the second Lord, David refers to someone else. But the Hebrew word is Adonai, a title for God himself. And in the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, the Greek word kurios is used in both places for Lord. The implication from all this word play is that the Lord God spoke to one who is equal to him yet distinct. So the conundrum for the Pharisees is this. If the Messiah is David's son, then he is human. And Jesus has just recently been called the son of David in his triumphal entry. But if the Messiah is also David's Lord, then he is a divine figure, a son not only of David but of God as well. To the Pharisees, this could seem like a contradiction, or at the least a cause for confusion. But depending on how they answered Jesus, they would be causing problems for themselves. Deny the inspiration and truth of Scripture or acknowledge that there is truly something special about Jesus. They weren't able to answer Jesus' challenging question, whereas Jesus, the Messiah, was able to answer all of theirs. 
the religious leaders questioned Jesus to try to trap him in his words. But each time, Jesus answered them from the authority of God's word, and they could not respond. His reasoning and interpretation of the scriptures were impeccable. Why? Because Jesus is the word of God who came to reveal God perfectly to us. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the Son of God, and He is the promised Messiah. Because we believers have experienced God's kindness to us in salvation through faith in Jesus, we should live under the authority of the Word of God in all areas of our lives with gratitude and joy. And we should proclaim the truth of this Word in the world because all of it points to Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Savior from our sin. Thanks for listening to this week's leader training for the Gospel Project for Adults. For more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.